0: Welcome back to Victor E. History podcast from the History Department at Fort Hay State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Dr. Manami Guha and Holly Marquis highlight student, faculty, and alumni research. I'm Holly Marquis, and today I'm joined by Senior History Major Alyssa Zajac, who's here to discuss women's roles in food preparation in the Holodomor. Thanks for taking time out of your early morning to chat with me in what is a fascinating research topic, Alyssa. Oh,
1: well, thank you for having me.
0: Can you start by telling us a little about yourself?
1: Uh, so I am currently in my fifth year of my history degree here at Fort Hayes. I'm hoping to graduate this winter, and I moved here to go to school originally from Salina, Kansas.
0: And what class did you write this paper for?
1: So I wrote this paper for the class Nationalism and Socialism in Eastern Europe with Dr. Amber Nickel. Uh, we covered Eastern European history in the 20th century, focusing on the rise of socialist, communist, and nationalistic ideologies and regimes that emerged.
0: So that is a big topic, and there was a lot to choose from. You decided to write on the Holodomor, but before we discuss what you researched, can you give us a background on what the Holodomor was?
1: So the Holodomor was a famine genocide perpetrated by the Soviet Union and is estimated to have killed over 4 million Ukrainians from 1932 to 1933. The famine was man-made a result of policies from the Soviet Union, which stole harvested grain from Ukrainians, even as they were starving to death. Um, It also included uh, policies that the Soviet Union implemented, such as travel restrictions, blacklisting and the prosecution of a class of wealthy farmers, which not only worsened the famine, but actively prevented Ukrainians from feeding themselves and their families.
0: So you did exactly what we hope all of our students would be able to do when they're in the seminar class, is that you picked a really interesting topic, you read the historical literature, and you came up with a new angle. So while historians have begun to look at gender in the Holodomor and women, there hasn't been a thorough examination of women's roles in food preparation, which I imagine changed quite dramatically during a man-made famine. What drew you to this research topic?
1: Um, going into the class, I knew I really wanted to look into Ukrainian history around this time, around the 1930s, because my great-grandparents immigrated in from the Ukraine in 1930. But as I found out from my research, they were from a Western region that wasn't a part of the Soviet state at the time, so they wouldn't have been impacted. But that's kind of what got me into the topic.
0: Yeah, it always makes the research process more powerful when you've got a personal connection to what you're learning about. What drew you to the aspect of women and food inside this topic?
1: Um, so women's history is always something I've been interested in. And so looking at the famine, I kind of like matched that with women have always traditionally been really involved in food preparation. It's always been a very gendered role. And I, so,
0: I'm bummed that you're graduating this semester yeah. <laughs> because we have a history of the world through food and I'm teaching women in American history. So this would have been like your ideal semester. <laughs> yeah, cool. So how did women procure food during the early months of the holodomor.
1: So in the early months, the way that women procured food kind of changed from the way that they would eventually in later months. Um, In the earlier months, there were more resources available to them, such as women hunted animals around the village, domestic animals such as dogs and cats, as well as wild animals like mice. Um, By the later months of the famine, most of these animals were gone, either dead or run away. Um, They also had... Could get food by selling goods such as clothes and fabrics and uh, household objects to the wives of Soviet officers who had plenty of food. They could also sell any precious metals, stones, or family heirlooms that they had at the Torgsin, a Soviet-run market which sold goods and especially food in exchange for jewels, precious metals, and foreign money. Uh, People would dig up graveyards to sell valuables that the deceased were buried with in order to sell them at the Torgsin.
0: Selling your family heirlooms and even exhuming loved ones sounds really difficult and dangerous, but what other dangers did they face?
1: So women who wanted to trade or sell their family heirlooms and goods um, often had to travel some distance, and the travel itself was very dangerous. For one, women were starving, so traveling was often very difficult for people who were weakened from starvation. Um, And so many people were found dead at train stations or at the roadsides on their way to and from markets. Uh, People who were starving and desperate also resorted to violent robberies. So those traveling with goods or food were often robbed very violently.
0: Right. Can you imagine being so desperate and weak and you finally get food only to be robbed on the way home?
1: So people would often eat their food as they got it instead of travel with it.
0: That makes sense.
1: In later months, too, the Soviet authorities also put travel restrictions in place for Ukrainians, which meant that women who continued to risk travel and they did continue to risk travel could face very severe punishment if they were caught.
0: And what other ways did Ukrainian women defy these Soviet authorities to protect their food stores?
1: During the Holodomor, the Soviet Union not only took harvested grain from Ukrainians, but would also raid houses and take the food supplies from the families as well. And although they risked severe punishment, many women tried to hide their food stores from authorities, hiding the food wherever they could, behind walls, buried in gardens and fields, under stoves. And these attempts were rarely successful, but authorities would still ransack the houses, destroying property to find the food stores.
0: You mentioned in your paper that uh, that some people were able to retain livestock like cows and the milk from cows could nourish their family, but also their neighbors. So was there an attempt to share resources? And if so, what other resources did these women have around them that they utilized?
1: So as I mentioned before, uh, animals were a resource that women often look to, uh, wild animals around them, fish, turtles in the ponds. Um, they also foraged for local plants as well including wild plants such as wild carrot, clover blossom, tree bark, and local weeds, as well as food scraps such as corn husks, little bits of grain and the corn stalks.
0: And like the trading, there's risk there. People eating wild flora had risks too, right?
1: Yeah, many of the plants that the women harvested could be toxic, especially if they were eaten raw or improperly prepared. So for those who were already weakened from what would be months of starvation, the toxic plants could be fatal. Uh, Children especially were susceptible to sickness and death from these plants. Um, The scraps that they harvested, the food scraps, would also be very dangerous as they were often rotted. And Soviet authorities would punish and kill those who attempted to take even the scraps and sometimes even poison them to prevent Ukrainians from eating them.
0: That seems so wild to poison food scraps to prevent starving people from eating them. In your paper, you discuss how all of the foraging and finding scraps, uh, it's still pretty meager. And then the wildlife is going to dwindle from hunting and running away. Uh, But some women take very extreme measures. Can you discuss some of those?
1: Several of the testimonies I read through mentioned instances of people who were not in their right mind from starvation, who resorted to acts of cannibalism, and necrophagia, or the eating of corpses. Wow. This included a couple of testimonies which describe instances where women who were, again, not in their right mind from starvation resorting to the eating of their own children.
0: Oh my, I can't imagine reading through the source material like that and and reading those, those stories.
1: Uh, most of the testimony we have regarding these instances come from survivors who would only discuss instances in other villages, whether or not instances in their own villages occurred so what we have what knowledge we have is limited
0: was there any help coming from outside of ukraine to these starving families
1: a few of the testimonies from survivors mention receiving help from family members outside ukraine Uh, one testimony recalled writing to a family member living in poland and receiving money from them who they were then able to use to buy food at the torgson however help was often prohibited from the Soviet authorities, and few people were lucky enough to have such resources.
0: Right. And of course, not everyone is is fortunate enough to get this kind of help. And I think you do a good job in your paper at acknowledging the gaps in the testimonies that exist, because people who don't survive don't often have their stories told. Let's shift here a bit, though, and talk about food preparation. Now that we've discussed food procurement, what kind of policies did the Soviets put into place that affected food prep?
1: One of the most common ways that a lot of testimonies recalled was the restriction of and confiscation of mills and millstones that were used to grind flour. Um, the Soviet authorities would destroy these millstones and would punish those who were caught with the millstones um, or those who were attempting to grind their grain another way, like grinding it with rocks or a mortar pestle.
0: That's something that I wouldn't have considered taking implements, not just food. How did these women find ways around these restrictions?
1: Although they, again, could have faced severe punishment, many women did attempt to continue to grind their grain either by hiding millstones or finding alternate ways, such as using stones in the ground to grind food. Uh, They would dry and grate many different foods um, and bake them into flatbeds or fat flat cakes. They would also find alternate ways to prepare food, such as boiling food into gruels, mushs, and soups.
0: How can studying food procurement and preparation shed light on gender and genocide?
1: By studying the way that women during the holiday responded and adapted to the crisis around them and procured food and pre- prepared this food in light of all of the issues that they had, we can understand the way that gender influences the responses and reactions of people responding to circumstances such as famine.
0: I think it'd be really interesting to look on the other side as well and look at the Soviet women and their roles. So if you ever wanted to expand this, I think that that would be a neat way to do so. You did such a great job with this research and writing. What kinds of primary source materials did you use?
1: Uh, my primary sources were made up of, of large number of testimonies from survivors of the Holodomor. Um, Thankfully, a really large number of survivor testimonies and stories have been recorded and preserved by a number of different historians and other organizations working to ensure that these stories continue to be told.
0: Is there anything that you found in the research that you ultimately didn't end up getting to use?
1: So, as I mentioned, I read through hundreds of testimonies from survivors And so there were a number of really impactful and often difficult stories that I wasn't really able to discuss in my paper. Uh, For instance, I discussed instances of cannibalism in my paper, but there was one story that wasn't able to be included. Um, A survivor recalled a girl he had gone to school with and he'd walked home with and whose mother used to feed him apples when they got home from school. The Survivor recalled how, during the famine, the mother had gone insane with hunger, killed her daughter, and eaten her. After a few days, when the starvation had eased, she realized what she'd done and ran out onto the street confessing to what she'd done, and she was arrested and sent to a concentration camp in northern Russia.
0: Some really heavy testimonies that you're reading. This is your last semester of classes. So as you look back on your time at FHSU, do you have a favorite class or a favorite research project that you've taken on?
1: So a favorite research project would probably be this one. Right, It was difficult, <laughs> but it was really interesting. Uh, as for a favorite class, it would probably have to be Dr. Perez's disease and history class because I took that one at the height of the COVID pandemic, which was really interesting. Right, to be learning about <laughs> yeah. global
0: diseases during a pandemic. She's teaching that again in the spring. So if anyone missed it, um you have Alyssa's word <laughs> and it is a yeah. cool class uh, what are you working on this semester
1: so I'm just finishing up a couple of last classes before graduation this winter I have two history classes I'm in
0: which ones uh
1: African American history and the rise of modern America okay. I believe
0: yes yes, <laughs> yes. that's it. okay <laughs> Alyssa thank you so much for joining me today this is incredible
1: thank you for having me
0: We will post a selected bibliography of sources for those who want to learn more about women and food during the Holodomor at our website, victoryhistory.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-E, history.com. You can subscribe by email to get notifications on episodes, and you can find our Victory History podcast on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, or at victoryhistory.com. And if you're interested in pursuing a history degree or history education degree at FHSU online or on campus... Visit www.fhsu.edu slash history to learn more.